Hello everyone and welcome to episode 4 of Lur and Longboy Liberty, also known as Gabriel and Nick. Yeah, how's it? Uh, so we here today are going to continue our tradition of talking about things that are very relevant to South Africa and topical, by of course talking about the most topical thing at the moment, which is that it's the how many year anniversary of the 101. treaty? 101. The 101 anniversary of the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah, no relation to us guys, promise. Promise, except maybe, you know. You know, you know smart minds can draw comparisons. Yeah. Um, but we'll get there. So it was on the uh, the 28th of June, yes, mm. uh, in 1918 or 1919? 18. 1918, that the Treaty of Versailles was signed, um, ending the, the war between uh, the, the powers in the First World War. It was Germany's surrender, basically, at the end there. Yeah. Uh, and it's generally been considered to be one of the greatest failures in world diplomatic history. Yeah, so there's this story about, I think that most people have in their minds when they think about it, uh, they don't think about it too much, is that the Treaty of Versailles was a diplomatic catastrophe. Um, it was too punitive. It set Germany up to fail and then when Germany did fail, because it had been bullied no, into sorry, its, its position. It's, it's, we got it wrong. It's, it is the 100 years. It's the centenary. Yes, it's it is the big centenary. one. This that's is the that's centenary. why we're talking about this. We know what we're doing. We know exactly what we're doing. This is 100 years since the worst deal in history. The worst deal. Worst deal. The worst deal. There's never been such a bad deal. So why was it such a terrible deal? Well, the general line is that uh, reparations uh, were so extremely expensive, there's no way that the Germans could pay them back, so that tanked the economy. And then when people suddenly get very poor, uh, in conjunction with that, the military was forced to be small and no air force allowed and very little shipping and so on. And it destroyed their economy and made them resentful. So yeah, so it makes them angry and then they say, well, what we need to do is rebuild our military. We need to retake the little bit of land that we lost and take lots more land and punish all of these yeah, yeah. Uh, French people that have, uh, that have tried to punish us and uh, rule the world. And fascism is kind of born from the ashes of the German catastrophe of the 1920s and the German catastrophe of the 1920s is directly to, uh, the root cause of that is 1919, Treaty of Versailles. So what's interesting um, is that this is actually the line I think that John Maynard Keynes made popular. Yeah. Because uh, he wrote an influential piece of writing just after the treaty was signed in which he put forward many of these arguments. And he also said... Um, that uh, he stormed out. He stormed out. He was at the Treaty yeah, of Versailles. Yeah, yeah. He stormed out. He yeah, stormed yeah. Out. and he famously said that this isn't a peace treaty. Is an armistice for twenty years, mm. which proved to be very accurate. Yeah. So Keynes was right about that. I think that he was wrong about some of it, though. Yeah. Um, so we've discussed this before, but I, uh, one of the arguments he put forward is that the treaty was unduly harsh on Germany, and that it was truly crippling. Um, some historians have argued that the Treaty of Versailles was less harsh than the Franco-Prussian Wars Treaty, which is in the 1870s, which had been uh, part of the establishment of Germany as a country. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that's the reparations and the territorial losses and stuff were actually much more uh, brutal on Germany after the end of that war. Sorry, the, oh, sorry on, on, on France. France. On France, France, Germany, France yeah. suffered much worse. Uh, much worse, yeah. yeah, got a much worse deal in 1872, I think it was, yeah. than Germany got in 1919. Yeah. Um, that's one important factor. Another important factor is if you look at the treaties, 
that the Germans, some of the German diplomats and military figures had been thinking of what kind of treaty they'd like to force upon their enemies. Yes. Because in the last stages of, in, in sort of the summer of 1918, the Germans come up with the stormtrooper tactic of sort of rapid artillery barrages with stormtroopers going at the same time, yeah, raiding yeah. them at night. It kind of changed the deadlock of trench warfare in World and, War One. They and, were making yeah. radical it ground. Looked, yeah, it looked like they might be able to break the Allies before the American yeah, army arrived. Yeah, if the Americans hadn't come in so quick, they came in quicker than expected, then it looked like they might be able to break that back of the Allies. And so they were starting to think, what kind of treaty will we force upon these Allies? And those treaties that they were drafting were more harsh than the Treaty of Versailles. They were, yeah, they were terribly harsh. I mean, they would see Germany being the super behemoth with the Netherlands, which was a completely neutral country, yeah. locked in uh, perpetual economic union with them. Uh, Belgium the same or possibly even being annexed by Germany so it was it was the the Germans compared to what they were planning for their their opponents they got off quite lightly and then of course the last one is that there was one major ally that did drop out of the war that did in a sense lose the war and that was Russia uh and in, in a lot of ways, Germany helped that partly by killing a lot of Russians and also by uh, funneling Lenin from Switzerland into Moscow yes. at the right time because there was the Re Russian Revolution of, the, of, of February 1917 where the communists come to power, but they don't pull out of the war. And the, 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 the other interesting thing about that is the Bolsheviks actually received some funding directly from the Imperial German government. Yes, the this, German government is... Fun yeah, yeah. This is all part of my thesis that Imperial Germany was is the villain of the last 200 years. Well, we're gonna we're gonna look we'll, at that a little we'll bit carefully. About that later, um, so, but, but the, the the treaty that they forced on Russia, uh, having sort of set up this puppet government in some senses. I mean, I think Lenin genuinely believed what he believed and was happy to take money from anyone oh, yeah, in order to no. get it. He wasn't a, the Bolsheviks. He wasn't uh, a faker. What was the famous line of the Bolsheviks? We'll, we'll get we'll hang the capitalists with the rope they sell us. Yes, there yeah. we go. Uh, but um, certainly the Germans helped him get there, and then when they got the when they when they when it was time to sue for peace, they forced upon them a deal in which the sort of amount of uh, money extracted and the amount of territory seized uh, on on the west on the eastern border of Germany, sort of. I mean, they riding they, they took Poland basically, and the whole of Ukraine. I think yeah. was also supposed to. Yeah, be part so of they that. took like forty percent of Russian industry. 50% of Russian industry, 40% of agriculture, you know, just absurdly high figures. Yeah. Um, much more harsh than the Treaty of Versailles. So in these senses, the Treaty of Versailles wasn't nearly so harsh. There's another sense in which it wasn't nearly so harsh, which was that it wasn't enforced quite quickly. Uh, various of the Allied powers stopped demanding reparations. This is partly because the Germans were inflating their currency in order to, you know, pay them in worthless marks, and that was starting to cripple the... Well, almost no point collecting those marks then. Um, but they also could see that there was a genuine need to to kind of be flexible about that. Yes. And maybe that was a good thing, but then on, there was also great flexibility in terms of the military um, strictures imposed in the Treaty of Versailles. The Germans weren't allowed to occupy the, the Ruhr. Yeah, the Rhineland. The Rhineland, when they did, the French army outnumbered the German army something like 17 to 1. They could have invaded and put an end to it, but they didn't because mm. they were the French. Timid. The French had actually invaded in, I think, the 20s, and they'd occupied the Rhineland and the Ruhr, but there was a very successful uh, strike by German workers, yes. which basically pushed the French out. But that was them trying to enforce the treaty, and after that, there was the enforcement of the treaty really started to kind of just fade away. Yeah, so the Germans were kind of building a secret army, excepting it was no real secret. Um, As... 
Winston Churchill famously was brought to the attention of the British Parliament many a time. Mm. And they were also building an air force, largely by getting Germans to buy Volkswagen. You sort of pay for your car now, and you'll and you'll get it once you build a factory. But in fact, all the money <laughs> goes to building Luftwaffe. <laughs> and they were um, developing new tank technologies in the Soviet Union. Interestingly, mm. uh, what people often forget about the, the Second World War is that. For a lot of the 30s and right up until 1941, mm. um, the Germans and the Soviets were basically the same team. Yeah, and they were viewed as the same team by people at the time. Inside, von Ribbentrop, uh, Molotov pact signed between the, the German and Soviet uh, foreign secretaries basically uh, solidifies that relationship and, and also carves apart Poland. They kind of, they, they don't exactly invade at the same time, but their agreement that they're going to take this land between them and carve it between each other yeah. is made very explicitly. And Stalin would call Hitler and say, I want to take this area. And mm. Hitler would say, okay, you can take yeah, there. You can have this, here. give me that. Yeah. Exactly. It was, it was a very, uh, they of course didn't, both sides knew that it was very temporary in a yes. certain sense. Yeah. But they also were, I mean, there were Soviet supplies going to the Germans right up, I think, until the day of the invasion. Mm. Yeah, and they were, and the Soviets were shocked when it came. And the Americans weren't totally clean. There was, uh, uh, I was speaking to someone on Wednesday who was referring me to a book that I haven't read myself, but the, the claim sort of being made there was that a lot of German steel was being imported from America during the Nazi regime as they were building, you know, what, where did the steel come from to build the submarines and the Luftwaffe and the tanks? A lot of it came from the States, big part of the reason that they wanted to keep a hands-off approach to this. Um, FDR's, uh, the, 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 uh, the, diplomats that he sent to Berlin were some of the worst diplomats in the entire American service, completely uh, silly in some of the periods uh, and, and appeasing and so on. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We are getting ahead of ourselves because I think, I think uh, one of the, what, one what, of the, yeah, what, what's crucial about Versailles? Why does it, why did it fail if it wasn't that harsh? Right. So I think it failed because it wasn't enforced on the military side. Um, the German, German militarism was not contained while it was still small. The idea is you destroy the big machine and then when it's small, if it starts rising up, you can crush it before. Easily it, again, yes. Easily again, and that didn't happen. Um, but the other sense in which it failed, so that's sort of after the fact though, that's ex yes. post. There's something about the treaty itself that was, a, that was a profound failure, in my opinion. And that was the guilt clause, the famous guilt clause. Because yes. by the time you get to the treaty, there's already been an armistice for about six months. There's been very little fighting. Uh, there's been no fighting. Yeah. Um, and a lot of troops from America have gone home and the Germans are starting to get a bit tired, but they start wondering maybe if we could whip something up. There's been, there's been a fair amount of chaos in Germany at the time as well. Yeah. Because right after the war, the thing began falling apart. Yeah. Um, and deposition of the Kaiser, which was kind of one of the preconditions yeah. of the thing, kind of changes the political environment a lot. You've got these, you know, the, first, the Weimar Republic is sort of declared to exist by someone shouting out of the window, by the way, we have become a republic. <laughs> <laughs> and someone says, oh, okay. And then they're like, well, it's official now. Yeah, and there was a, I believe at the time, there Didn't was really a work. communist rebellion. Kind of yeah, thing. communist rebellions, mass strikes. It, was, it, it really was a very chaotic time. And, and Europe was just tired. Europe was exhausted, but crucially, Hindenburg, the chief general, Ludendorff, his right-hand man, and Gruner was another important role player. They all knew that once the Americans had come in, the equation had changed. They weren't able to import anymore. They were, there was complete allied supremacy in the seas. So they were locked in in terms of supplies and trade and food and petrol, and they had 
run out of men numbers. In, in out fact, of before the Americans arrived in force in that last uh, successful offensive or mildly successful offensive, uh, they had already begun to have doubts that they could win the war because they had had this brilliant new tactic. They were gaining some ground for the first time in a long time. It was the first time they had been on offensive for almost the entire yeah the since the beginning. Of the Western Front since the beginning. And they just, even though the British and the French were battered and kept making mistakes, they just didn't break through. Yeah. They got close, but they just couldn't break it. Yeah. And they knew then that it was too late. That was the last gasp. That was that their was last gasp. And, and they, so they the generals, asked the government that they want, that they, for an armistice. So they, armistice. Yeah, exactly. So the general said to the government, please, we need an armistice. And the general said to the government, we need a peace treaty. I think they we said cannot the, win. We're, we're, yeah, the army is like two weeks from disintegrating. Is exactly. What told the government. Exactly. The mass defections are starting to happen. Yeah. They were worried about that taking over. So the thing is, they were in such a weak position that when they got to the treaty table, when they when they got to Versailles and they and they had to sign the deal, they were willing to swallow the tough reparations. They were willing to swallow the sort of no man's land zones that they weren't ever allowed to send a military to. They were willing to swallow the 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 necessity to reduce the tonnage of their naval force. They were willing to commit to never creating an, an air force. They were willing to Something reduce that, the size of their uh, army. They the, were ready to take the hit. On the on the naval front, that was uh, there was treaties signed afterwards where all the major powers agreed that they were going to limit the number of ships they had. Yeah, the tonnage stop the, the stop the arms race. But so. So there was just one clause. At the end of it, there was one clause that they said, we cannot reasonably sign this. This is crazy. You can't do this. And this was the German war guilt clause. And this clause said, we, the undersigned uh, German people representatives, declare that we were solely responsible for this nihilistic, catastrophic, terrible, terrible war. This disaster which has destroyed Europe. And it was, it's such an interesting thing because to me because it's not about military, it's not about power. Yeah. It's not about economics. It's just about prestige. Yes. It's just about the sense of German guilt, about the sense of French excellence, about the sense of the Russians not really having a role to play, about the sense of the Austro-Hungarians kind of getting a free pass. Yes, yes. It's just about should you as a German person feel guilty for the deaths of your own citizens, of the foreign citizens, of the destruction of the economies, the misery of the people that have gone through. So I would, I would like to say at this point that what for, for our purposes here, what's particularly important is not necessarily whether they were mostly responsible right, or not. Right, right. Um, you and I have differing views on that. We do, we do. I tend to think that Germany does bear some of the blame you think russia is more to blame well i think no i think i i think we agree that they didn't bear sole responsibility yes yes no. and the problem with making them declare sole responsibility which is really something that the french demanded more than anyone else whether it was true or not whether it is true or not well no i think it's important that they didn't that it's not true that they bore sole responsibility because once you are forced to to sign up for a lie it changes everything it changes the the concept of what it is to be a German. Because either as a German you have to sign on to that lie and say we really are guilty, or We're just the worst. And say yeah, say say that we're the worst, you know, slap ourselves on the back with with uh, with a cat and nine tails, or you set up the playing field for someone to say we've been bullied into taking sole responsibility for something that is more complicated than that. Yes. And we've been bullied by foreign forces that actually do not have our interests at heart, foreign forces that do not see us as people, they just see us as purely evil. Yes. And that became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Germans 
the German state did become purely evil. It became the Nazi state, but it became the Nazi state on the back of a Nazi movement that said, we were forced to take the blame for this war, and yet the blame was not solely ours. And we're also great, and we're not just great with the greatest we're the greatest in the people in the world so that i think that that paying attention to the one sense of national pride is important and it does um it does make me want to tell a brief story about the build-up to world war one uh and the story is about the build-up to world war one being such that the Treaty of Versailles is not an end to World War One, as you say. It's just a it's just another move in World War One and World War Two being another move in World War One. Because the same basic problems don't really go away. And those problems are a profoundly wicked way of thinking of national pride. Yes. And so the story is really told, I think, best by Dominic Lievin. Professor Dominic Lievin. He's a Don at Cambridge historian. And he's focused on Slavic history all his life. He's an old man now. And his, his latest book, I think it still is, although it was written a few years ago, is called Towards the Flame. And it's an analysis of the causes of World War I. And, and he certainly, um, I don't want to make the mistake here of making it seem like he thinks or making it seem like I think this is all the Russians' fault. Yeah, But he does make the case for why we should think of the Russian role more often than we do. And he starts out by making a very interesting point. If you were to go to the coal mines of Wales or the fisheries of Scotland where men were being drafted or the sort of vineyards of France and you ask them, are you going now to fight a war over some part of the Balkans? Over, over whether Bulgaria is going to fit into this country or that country. Or whether or Bosnia so. is a part of Serbia. And, yeah. None of them would say yes. In fact, many of them would ask you what you're what talking about. Yeah. Where they wouldn't be able to put those things on a map uh, if they didn't yeah, have. Britain had no quarrel with Austria-Hungary, really. So, And yet the war really does start there. Uh, I mean, literally with, with, with Princip killing Archduke Franz Ferdinand. But... One way, the way that the war was taught to me at, at, at school was a little bit like this is an accidental thing, and then you've got the system of alliances that collapses yes, in upon yeah. itself as a result. Um, but 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 Lievin's point is slightly deeper. He attends to a broader trend in history, something that we as South Africans uh, could obviously bear no relation to: decolonization. He notices that Europe was colonized in a sense. It thought of itself as Christendom, Christendom was yeah. colonized by Dar al-Islam from the Iberian coast, from all the way to the western, most western parts of Europe and Spain and Portugal, through to the east, up to Vienna. Yes. There was, Dar al-Islam was there. The Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire. There were various iterations, actually. I mean, sometimes there were splits and then reunifications and yeah, suzerainties. Well, there, there yeah, there had been Islamic forces in Europe in various guises, starting with the, the, the Umayyads, I believe, or the first Islamic that's, caliphate that's to enter right. Spain. Yeah. Um, when the Byzantines collapse in the sort of 1300s, that's when the Ottomans cross into, into mm -hmm. uh, the Balkans. So there had been this feeling around Christian Europe Mm. that they were under siege. And that's one of the things that provokes the Crusades in the Middle Ages. Exactly. The Crusades are this organized effort to say, although we belong to different 
uh, monarchic political units, there's something bigger that unites us all. Yes. And really, it is more religion than race. Yes. But as time goes by, we'll start to see how race becomes yeah, more becomes important. Yeah, more, more racialized, and Christendom starts to be dropped in favor of race. Of, of whiteness. Yes. And so this decolonization project, uh, it, decolonization is something we think of as South Africa. I think whether or not we like the, the tactics of the fallists and of the academics and of the sort of various political players that, that push this idea. I think we generally there's a sentiment in South Africa that I detect of thinking, well, the, it's, a, it's a good project to pursue. You just need to use the right means to do it. And yet there's a very important cautionary tale here um, that comes out of the last moments when, when it really works. When it's sort of half working, you've got these battles between two two groups and that's i mean it's a nasty thing but it's uh, it's it's hard to say one side's wrong it's hard to say one side's right and there's and there are um there are certainly useful things that come out of it the crusaders do completely awful inhumane things on the other hand some parts of the crusaders develop a, a postage network and a and a system of transferring money banking and foreign and banking like that, and stuff yeah. that's really uh, good for economic growth uh, likewise in Darul Islam there's some kind of uh, yeah, there's some places there was a, I think a few cities that were majority Jewish actually yeah they're they hugely were, tolerant they were filled with Jews that were exiled from uh, Isabella Spain exactly but in other cases they were also they practiced a system of religious slavery where every Christian boy in the Balkans basically could be handed over as a janissary and castrated so yeah so ups and downs so they're ups and downs for sure but then when the project it's the the problem is when you when when you've got a battle and then victory turns out to be kind of the worst thing because victory in the, the de great decolonization of whiteness or of europeness or of christendom is when the sick man of europe as it was called the ottoman empire finally just cannot Over. afford to mm. to take to maintain the hold over its let's call them colonies its 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 hold on the balkans it's Western provinces, yeah. and then austro-hungary and russia both are looking at these last pockets of formerly colonized land and they say this is the blood of our soil that 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 was that was shed on this land when the colonists first came and it is therefore our soil by blood right yeah, the, to the, reclaim the Habsburg, the austro-hungarians can say oh well, you know we've been uh, we've been fighting the Ottomans for centuries. This is our natural thing. We're the descendants of this great empire that's defended Christendom. And the Russians are saying these are Slavic brothers. Exactly. And what is most interesting about Lievin's analysis, in my view, is who of the Russians are saying that. Because the Tsar, the, 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 the thing that binds Russia and the thing that binds Austro-Hungary Hungary, is the Tsar and the Emperor. They are multi-ethnic uh, political states. Yes. They are about as multi-ethnic as, as you know, it's, it's a cosmopolitan melting pot, yeah. sort of very much of the flavor that we, that we look up to today. Yes. Vienna, St. Petersburg, these are places where you hear many different languages on the streets. There's many different uh, ethnicities being uh, present. Famously, the Austro-Hungarian army often had problems because its officers would speak different languages to its troops. <laughs> you know, this is an interesting problem to have. This yes. sounds like such a 21st century problem. Yeah. And that's because the 20th century was so defined by race-ethnic states. But what came before race-ethnic states were these grand monarchic empires where the thought was as long as you're loyal to, to, the, the, sovereign. to the sovereign, then it, it doesn't 
doesn't really matter what you look like, what you sound like, you can kind of get along. Yeah, there's actually an interesting South African example of that, which is in um, in the sort of late 1800s, the British Cape government attempted to disarm the Basutu mm. um, as part of various campaigns to disarm uh, black Africans. And one of the things that the Basutu appealed to, they said, but we're British subjects, mm. which means we're subject to the Queen's laws and, just, and, and justice and we need trials and we have the rights of British citizens and we're free men and that includes the right to bear arms. And the same, and Sol Pleike makes the same argument in the ANC with the nineteen, with with the Land Act at the beginning of uh, sort of the Union of South Africa under the British flag, and they say no, but I want to go and ask the the king, you know, how you can possibly allow this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. The trouble is that by this stage, across Europe, race thinking has has replaced uh, religious grouping and and has started to. Uh, uh, push aside the kind of thought that it's the, the loyalty to the sovereign that holds the country together. Instead, it's the loyalty to a blood right yes. and often a blood right to a particular parcel folk of land. Who have a sort of, they're like an organic yes. object. It's a, it's a so, metaphysical entity. Yes. It's something that uh, that is in the world as fundamentally as the sun and the moon and you better attend to it. And this is the natural unit of selection, in fact. It's, it's races that compete and one race will ultimately win. So when we're talking about uh, other countries, we tend to not draw too many comparisons to South Africa. It's very important, but uh, I think maybe we should perhaps draw draw a comparison to South African. Yeah. So okay, I I want to draw the following comparison just by completing the the point of who it was in uh, Russia that was making the biggest noises. And yes. Dominic Levin's point is that it wasn't the Tsar, it wasn't the Tsar's government insofar as he had a parliament. It wasn't them either. It was the newspaper men. And yes, they were men. That sounds a little bit uh, familiar. And what had happened is that in the 1870s, more or less, hot metal, which radically changed the the printing press, new technologies came in that allowed mass production at a much cheaper rate on much cheaper paper of information, of text. And it was a disruption as great as the disruption, I think, of the social media today. Exactly. And of radio in its time to come. And the people who took charge of those platforms, they said, don't look east, which is where uh, Russian expansionism had been going. Don't look south towards the stands, which is where Russian expansionism had going and where they were thinking of extending their infrastructure and their education and their manufacturing. They said instead, look to the Slavic lands in the Balkans because these people are the same race as us because we need to decolonize them from the Ottomans and we need to make sure that they are not overwhelmed by the Austrians and we as a race must hold together. And it's under exactly that uh, ideology that Gavrila Princip shoots Archduke Franz Ferdinand. He wants to unite South Slavia. Now, I don't want to draw any comparisons to South Africa, <laughs> but the words are the same. Slavia yeah. and Africa. Africa today, in many people's mouths, means a race, just as Slavia means a race. And one yeah. of the terrible things about the way that we forget European history is that Slav was a race, Gael was a race, Frank or Gaul was a race, Teuton or Aryan was a race, Anglo-Saxon yes. was a race. These White was not quite the race that we think of it as today. Yes. There were genuine racial distinctions. Now we just call them ethnic distinctions. And the Slavic, uh, the pan-Slavism it was called, is much like pan-Africanism today. And when 
Kwame Anthony Appiah, in my view, the greatest living philosopher on race, says that pan-Africanism is the thing keeping racism alive in politics more than anything else in international politics. I hear an echo from a century ago when pan-Slavism was the number one thing because a new technology in a country that was economically backward and struggling and had an illegitimate government that was completely inept and falling upon itself. Alexander III, not unlike Zuma, was uh, had too many mistresses and couldn't really yeah, yeah. do much there useful. There was incompetence in the government. And so people needed something new to bind them together, something new to think about and pan-Slavism was it then and pan-Africanism is a very potent force today. Yes. And it's a great worry, and it's a and it's a particularly great worry because it goes unquestioned, as does the project of decolonization. Exactly. It goes unquestioned. I, I think I think what's also interesting about this point is the role of sort of media elites, uh, in that they they are very invested in these types of narratives. So in South Africa, we have so many examples of this of how um, uh, we, uh, you know, we 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 put out our hope report which shows that generally people are actually kind of, South Africans get along with each other Mm. or have positive views of each other. And yet we have a media elite that is so excited to just drive these narratives of this like oppressor and oppressed all the time. It just never stops. And there's kind of cheerleading for the EFF in headlines. That's what headline recently it said. uh, uh, How this EFF, young EFF MPs made in speech won the hearts of South Africans. Mm. I mean, okay. Yeah, there's a crowd full of people who dig it. Yeah, there, there are some people who like it, but I don't see how that's the hearts of South Africans. And the, and the, and the great warning, I think, that Lievin speaks to of, of what happened 100 years ago, 105 years ago, is that there were a million little villages in Russia. Russia then as now is a lot like South Africa. Uh, big cities, heavily industrialized, heavily fi- financed. Russian bonds were, the, were the, the, the big things to buy back in the day because the interest rates were so high because no one sh- was sure entirely whether they could pay back the bonds. So it was like a, a good investment if you had a high-risk appetite, um, much like sort of it would be to buy ESCOM or South African equities. But in those million little villages, people didn't even know what a German was. People did not identify themselves as Slavs. People identified themselves as Orthodox Christians yes. or as what syncretic Christians. They sort of had these uh, uh, cow leather bands that they would wear around their waists to protect yes. them from the tokoloshis that used to live in the banyas, in the yeah, yeah. in the baths and so on, in the forests and in the fields. They weren't interested. But when the time came to muster an army, they still knew about the Tsar and they still knew about this ancient organizing principle of their society and so they stood up and they and they went off in their millions in their millions to die and it was the media elites in the cities who were arguing precisely that it was in those villages interests because it was the people off in the village that were the truest slavs yes Pure Slavs. They were because the, they had the same old rituals as yesteryear, and they wore the same old dress, and they sang the same old songs. And it was for them that the, the land was being by fought. The German modern world. And yes, the cosmopolitan sort of habits, like smoking cigarettes and drinking yes, and cocktails, and pollution from the outside. Yes, reading novels and stuff like that. And and truly great people fell. I mean, one of the saddest things is Fyodor Dostoevsky, I think, is one of the greatest writers of the 19th century, of any century. And he wrote with a profound insight into the lives of working class and poor people, of prostitutes and beggars that really downtrodden. And he lived with them because he was poor often and schizophrenic and he had epileptic yeah. fits and was... 
even he bowed down to this pan-Slavic nationalist rhetoric. By the time he was 70, the year before he dies, he gets invited to make a speech on Pushkin's anniversary, the Shakespeare of Russia, and he stands up and sort of speaks to pan-Slavic's Slavic values yeah. and for the first time he says I am recognized for the first time he says I am loved why because in the elite circles this was exactly what they were hoping this kind of uh, yes, yes. respectable earthy writer would say and in South Africa I, I see a little bit of a shift in the tone from the Zuma era to the Ramaphosa era but something that doesn't seem to have changed is an af- is a fixation yes with the African identity and with the South African yes black identity and one of the questions is do we do we do we have a a military problem that we're facing as a result i think the answer is no but does that mean just because we don't have an elite that can muster 20 million south africans go march off into a war against uh, america in venezuela or whatever doesn't mean that we're off the hook yeah, no, because here uh, our, our, our race warriors have the luxury of not having to invade another country to find the enemy mm. because the enemy lives amongst us mm. or amongst them. Um, I think this is, this is, this is something we, we, I mean, we, this is kind of why we have this silly joke about, uh, about you know, not comparing the international to South Africa too much is because South Africans do have this blindness to how so many of the problems we face now whether they be to do with race, whether they to be to do with economics or policy, we can draw lessons from other parts of the world. You can look at affirmative action laws in Malaysia. You can look at the destructiveness of pan-Slavic or pan-German nationalism um, in the First World War and the Second World War. Uh, and there are key lessons to be drawn here, but we just for some reason are really reluctant to uh, see them as applicable to us. As though South Africa was the beginning and the end of time, as though oppression is invented in South Africa, mm. as though the struggle against colonial power was invented in South Africa. These are all, we're all part of a much greater trends in human mm. psychology, in uh, human behavior. Uh, why, why do you think we're so desperate to, to avoid these comparisons to overseas? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I'll tell you the truth. I think it's because wait it, you haven't you haven't until now been no I've been telling the <laughs> truth but I think I think that I think the honest answer to that question is uncomfortable. I think that it is because the flavor of fascism that we had we've had fascism here but the but the kind that we had was was profoundly different to what what happened in in Nazi Germany for one and let me just make it clear that the Russians when they started to get going with their um, with their with their pan-Slavic attitudes. I don't want to make it out to be the case that all of the peasants and all of the working class were were perfectly innocent. As always, almost, uh, the first target to hand is the one that faces the greatest brunt, as you said, and the first target to hand was the Jews. Yes. And the pogroms in Russia were, uh, there was an elitist quality to the program there, and there was a very peasant and working class uh, sort of enthusiasm for that project in those areas. Yes. Um, so if you look at the quantity, if you look at the quality of oppression uh, that took place across history and other places, I think one finds oneself in the awkward position of if one is making the comparison saying that the, the last hundred years, South Africa has been a, a horrendously oppressive place to the majority of its people. Mm. 
but, this terrible word but, but not at the same magnitude. Not as many people were killed. We, we haven't had a gulag. We haven't had gas chambers. We didn't have um, sort of uh, conflicts where millions of people were digging their own graves and trenches and then dying. Yeah. In them. And so I think it's very difficult for us to bring the world into South Africa in a comparative analogous way because it, 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 it undermines our sense of, of, of being distinguished by having had the worst uh, form of oppression on earth yes. when in fact what we had is one of the longest lasting or, or at least one of the latest iterations yeah. of uh, oppressive race nationalism uh, that's uh, really where we distinguished ourselves is that we kept the bloody project up for so long exactly that's that's the thing is the, the longevity of our oppressive project um, but people don't like to hear that because there's a sort of need in our in our public discourse and this isn't just in south africa it's everywhere because i think it's a facet of human nature yeah. that we want to we don't want to see the gradations people think that if you say apartheid wasn't as bad as czarist russia that means that you're claiming that apartheid is good no yeah yeah, um, yeah that is what people think which is yeah it's what people think and it's just ridiculous yeah um two things can be bad yeah but one thing can be worse than another. Yeah, and just because it wasn't the worst thing doesn't mean that it uh, that that wasn't an evil. That it wasn't an evil. That it's in that never again shouldn't apply. And one of the problems with never again is that it is, uh, in my view, never again is the greatest slogan of the twentieth century. It is the slogan that is being chanted on the streets of London and Manchester and Liverpool when the war comes to a close. It is this chant that is rippling across Poland and the Balkans and, uh, and, and parts of northern Italy. Never again. And we signed the treaty and then it happened again. In fact, it wasn't over to begin with yeah. because we didn't learn the lesson. And in South Africa, I worry that our never again it rings even more. It's got a yes. more tinny quality. It 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 doesn't feel like a substantive, full-throated conviction in the minds of South Africans that we cannot do this ever again. Well, I mean, I think I think people interpret "never again" in a different way in the South African context. In that, uh, "never again" to us, mm. um, and that's exactly what they started to think in Germany in the twenties. Exactly, and that's exactly the problem. Uh, so I think that that was that this is this is what we would call a good note to end. Okay. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Um, we hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, you can join as a friend of the Institute of Race Relations if you like the work that we're doing. You just need to SMS your name to three two eight two three. Terms and conditions apply, and SMSs cost one rand. And we'll see you on the next episode of Learn Longboy Liberty. Mm -hmm. Have a good one, guys.